Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 90, How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth. And, The Counterclock Incident, from Star Trek, the animated series. Welcome in to Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. Ken, 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 you're, uh, you're, you're caught on your backwards setting. Yeah, when? Yes, way, Ken. <clears throat> Better? Well, uh, we can understand you anyway. Yeah. Hmm, okay, okay, where was I? Oh, yes, and I'm Ken Ray. Each week on Mission Log, we break Star Trek down into its basic elements, trying to figure out the messages and morals and meanings of a given episode, or, during the animated series, a given two episodes. This week, John, what are we hitting? This week, we're talking about how sharper than a serpent's tooth and the counterclock incident. And Ken, we're at the end. Well, not not the end, the end. I mean, we, we still have, you know... Next Gen, Voyager, <laughs> DS9. Uh, but, but we're at the end of the animated series. It, it, it seems so weird to me. It flew by. Yeah, I, you know, I wonder, actually, now that we've already done it, whether we mm-hmm. gave it short shrift. I think, I think doing two episodes per worked. But I think there are some episodes where you could have done one full hour, yeah. but most of them probably not. Yeah, it, it, it did fly by rather quickly. Um, yeah. I don't know. And I guess if, if people think it flew by for them, too, we would love to have them uh, let us know about that. They can, of course, get in touch with us a few ways on Facebook, Skype, or Twitter. The handle is Mission Log Pod. They could call us, 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. We do have a lovely email address, missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, if you do send us or, or contact us, if you reach any of those places, uh, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Well, Ken, it's about that time. Before we get into our episodes this week, I'm, uh, I'm just dying to tell you some trivia. May I? W- won't you please? Okay. Well, uh, today is an auspicious occasion, not just because we're at the very end of Star Trek the Animated Series, but today, one of the episodes we're talking about, the next to the last episode, How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth, is the episode that was submitted to the Academy, the uh, National Academy of Television, Arts, and Sciences, for consideration, and it is therefore the show that won the Emmy for Star Trek. Now, Lou Scheimer did not expect at all to win. He did not think this was going to happen, and in fact, his son had overheard a different show called out during rehearsals. He thought that that was how the actual ceremony would go down. But no, during rehearsal, they call out the wrong show. They call it a different show. So Lou proceeded to have a few drinks and uh, sit through the ceremony, sort of not paying attention and not really caring what would happen when they got to the animated shows. And when Star Trek won, he was shocked. And you can tell. You can actually go on YouTube, look up his speech, uh, accepting the award, accepting the Emmy. And uh, it's really heartfelt. And he's surprised. And it's a great, genuine moment. So uh, remember that as we talk about today's episode. Um, Ken, you know, every week that we're doing animated, you have very cleverly inserted an ad for Mego Toys Mm -hmm. uh, right in between uh, the first segment and the second segment of the show. And um, it's no secret, if you've listened to Mission Log, you know I'm a fan of the Mego Star Trek toys from the 70s. Um, But I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about the trivia around those because there might be a little bit of misconception. the Mego toys premiered in 1974, the very first line of those toys. And uh, Mego, not unlike Filmation, was known for doing things on the cheap. <laughs> so they used the same bodies over and over. The, the one concession they made to Star Trek is that they, they retooled the lower legs to incorporate the boots 
of the action figures into the, the physical body. So they could just keep knocking those off the assembly line. You didn't have to make separate parts to go in. Mm-hmm. And um, it's worth noting that, that all the lead up to that was in the years kind of prior to and during the, uh, the development of the animated series. Star Trek was kind of a dead property. Um, so even though the animated series was on starting in late 73, these toys were actually modeled after the original series. Um, there, there wasn't supposed to be a crossover between the animated and, uh, and the toy line, even though there's some influence because that's what was on at the time. But it's interesting because, you know, having similar costumes and accessories for all the characters made it a very easy toy line to launch. Um, and these were the first Mego action figures to be packaged on a card rather than in a box. That's a pretty significant thing if you're a collector of vintage toys. Uh, the Aliens line first appeared in 1975, then more Aliens, and then nothing until that first wave of figures was re-released in 1979 by Sears. And, of course, 1979, by the time we get all the way up to that, that's when Star Trek The Motion Picture was getting ready to come out. And, and honestly, that's all we had to tide us over until those rumors began swirling for new Star Trek coming to TV or, or a movie or TV or whatever it was. But we'll figure that out on a future episode of Mission Log. Cartoon number one. How sharper than a serpent's tooth. Act one. As the Enterprise follows the originating trail of an alien space probe that had come near Earth, they suddenly encounter a large, fast-moving alien ship. No one has seen anything like it, and Kirk orders the new guy, Ensign Walking Bear, to go in for a closer look. Out of nowhere, the Enterprise slows way down. Kirk calls for the engines to stop as they now find themselves in a force field globe created by the unknown ship. Before you can say we come in peace, the unknown ship starts firing something upon the Enterprise. The Enterprise fires back, but it's no good. Then, like it's some kind of thing that changes the way it looks, that big ship changes the way it looks into a kind of reptilian bird creature. Walking Bear knows what it is. He shouts, Kukulkan! He's the only one who recognizes the creature slash ship as a kind of ancient Aztec and Mayan god that brought knowledge to his people on Earth. Then, with no warning, McCoy, Scotty, Walking Bear, and finally Kirk are transported away. We can only assume to the interior of the Kukulkan ship, and it looks like Spock will have time now to brush up on his command skills again as he takes the big chair on the bridge. Inside the alien ship, the voice of Kukulkan makes a veiled threat as it conjures up an elaborate ancient Mesoamerican city for its guests. Act 2. On board the Enterprise, Spock has no way of contacting those four crew members, so he'll do what he does best. Math. Well, he's probably weighing out how to break out of that force field. We'll check in again later and see how he's doing. In the Kukulkan ship, Kirk and the others are mightily impressed with all the ancient symbology. Walking Bear further explains that the ancients built this city, or cities like it, with the promise that Kukulkan would return, but he never did. It's more complicated than that, though. The city that the crew find themselves in is actually what the ancients should have built. All those disparate cultures thousands of years ago only built their own pieces. No one group actually got it right. The prisoners, I mean landing party, wander around. The pyramid in the middle of the city no doubt is important to all of this, and Kirk climbs to the top. There are four reptile motif towers around this pyramid, and Kirk figures that if they just point them all toward the pyramid, well, then there's suddenly a burst of light, explosions, and then there's Liza. I mean, Kukulkan, the the guy, alien thing, really knows how to make an entrance. He's really, really not so good, though, at making a first impression. He's expecting a fight, weapons, hate, the whole thing. Kirk's like... No. 
Kukulkan assumes he is a landing party's master. Kirk throws down a little logic of his own. Hey, we don't even know who you are, much less a god to be worshipped. You didn't know? Here, uh, let me speed dial a guy you should talk to named Apollo. Kukulkan then transforms the landing party's surroundings to reveal that they are in a kind of zoo. One might even say a menagerie full of cages, which contain creatures from all over the galaxy. Kukulkan isn't totally heartless, though. The cages actually make those creatures think that they're in their own natural environments. They are perfectly content. Hey, uh, when you're done talking to Apollo, Kirk has a direct line to Talos Four. You might want to talk to them as well. Kirk kind of lets Kukulkan know that what he is doing is maybe not the most ethical thing. And Kukulkan takes the news about as well as he does all of his interactions with the humans, full of threats, overreaction, blowhard, godlike stuff. Hey, it's just a zoo, and he is doing you all a favor. Kukulkan knows that humans are warriors, and this makes him so worked up, well, he, he might as well destroy them. Walking Bear tries to get in a word for fairness, but Kukukan just keeps showing off his zoo of angry beasts, even a Capellan power cat. McCoy is impressed. That thing never survives captivity. It's electrified as a natural defense. Kirk has had about enough of this, and Kukukan just sees them as all unruly children that he needs to control, in a cage or otherwise. He lunges at the landing party. Act 3. Remember how Spock was doing some math? Well, he's got the whole force field thing worked out. They'll go really, really fast. Really fast. And use the tractor beam at the same time. Then they'll get thrown out of the field. Really far. Done and done. Kukukan freaks out when he realizes the ship he captured is no longer in the force field. He'll really show them this time, and he prepares to destroy the Enterprise. Well, this is no good. Kirk and McCoy hatch a plan to break all of those animals in Kukulkan's ship out of their cages, including the Capellan power cat. With Kukulkan distracted, the Enterprise starts firing on the other ship, and their captor is now helpless. What does Kirk do when his enemy is in trouble? Well, he jumps in for the rescue, of course. He grabs a hypo from McCoy to sedate the electrified cat. Maybe now, finally... Kukulkan will listen to a Kirk speech. Humans aren't mindless animals, he says. We have independence, and we can't be treated like children or we'll never grow. We are better than we were, and now we've outgrown the need for a controlling, serpent-headed god figure to lead us. Kukulkan is like, oh, okay, I get it now. And then he quotes Lindsay Buckingham, you can go your own way. Back on the Enterprise, time for a little reflection on what just happened. Kukulkan was the godlike figure in all those ancient legends, just a powerful alien who wanted to help. Spock chimes in that whenever aliens visited Vulcan, they actually left better for it. McCoy and Kirk are reminded of Shakespeare, King Lear to be exact, that Kukulkan must see them all as thankless children. The end. I got a question for you. Sure, hit me. How do we know this whole thing isn't taking place in the Matrix? Ah, uh, you're blowing my mind. Well, dude, okay, so here's yeah. the thing. So Kukulkan has this whole, like, zoo, right? Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, these have been my only companions. Right. right. But but they don't do anything. They're not even companions at that point. They're just like, you know. They're just creatures in a box. They're just creatures yeah. in a box, right. Yeah. But yeah. we do know that they're getting some kind of, you know, holographic, mental something or other that makes them think they're running around all over the place and doing all sorts of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how do we know that's not happening to us? See, they can only be companions. They can only be Kugel Khan's companions if he's actually, you know, sort of inserting him into their reality, right? Right. So right. it's like we're walking around with the electric cat, but not, you know, doing anything. Kukul Khan and the electric cat, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> right, there you go. That's my funk band. Uh -huh. um, you know, so how do we know that, you know, it, I mean, I'm just saying this whole thing could be like Walking Bear's dream or and Kirk's maybe, dream or Ensign um, anybody's dream. Maybe Kukul Khan is just in a bigger box with a bigger hologram 
Uh, from another creature. Now you're blowing my mind. <laughs> uh, can I have a little additional trivia related to this episode? Uh, the writer Russell Bates is Native American. Ah. This was his only story pitch that made it to air. Um, he originally pitched a, a show called The Patient Parasites for TOS. And uh, Dorothy Fontana contacted Bates when TAS became a reality. She insisted that the Native American character, Dawson Running Bear, be maintained from his original original outline and that his ancestry have some critical role to play in the story. Now, wait a minute. He went from running bear to walking bear. <laughs> Did I just change that? I think it's, so. It's, it's walking bear. Oh, okay. I, I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, he's, no, we want yeah. him to be part of it, but let's tone it down a little bit. Running <laughs> might scare people. So maybe if he's walking bear, then we're cool. Maybe as an older man, he's just strolling bear. <laughs> You know, Sauntering Bear, Sauntering Bear, right? Yeah, which does not um, sound Native American at that point, right? You know, I, I would, as I did, I, you know, I pointed out that uh, that that last line of the show, "How sharper than a serpent's tooth," being the title, and uh, the line about uh, uh, the child that it is from Shakespeare, and mm-hmm. uh, fortunately, they just set it right in the show. <laughs> so, yeah. if you wondered about Star Trek's uh, credibility of just you know pulling Shakespeare when you need to make something sound important, they just tell you that they're doing that in the show. Um, and it, it, we'll get into this about the story and what the story means and all of that. And, and it is worth saying, though, that Bates said that this was intended as an homage to who mourns for Adonais, in part because it was his favorite episode, and also because Gene Kuhn had recently died as of the writing of this episode. So huh. those parallels are intended, um, huh. though they may be very, very obvious. Ye, well, ye, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just, just direct. We'll very come back good. to that. I mean, we'll have we to will. come back to that, because you can't escape it. I, I have to talk about the Kukukan uh, character, First of all, first of all, he is a, a mercurial sort. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows what this thing wants? He, he's angry. He threatens. He's looking for a fight. Uh, what he actually wants is kind of a mystery wrapped up in confusing language. He's got a zoo. He wants to protect and lead. He wants to help. Kukukan is actually the perfect uh, specimen for the role of an ancient god. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you're not yeah. wrong. I mean, the, and it, it it is weird because he he does seem to want to help. He actually says, "Well, he says he wanted to help, right?" And yeah, he's, I, I'm helping you. Shut up. <laughs> you know, here's here's my impression of Kirk, uh, Kirk slash. This is so difficult. My impression of Kirk slash Kukukan dialogue. Kirk says, uh, "You're really not that good at being a god." And Kukukan says, "Silence. I am awesome at being a god." You know that that's like it's kind of it. their entire yeah. back and forth. Yeah, yeah. There's no there's no clear. I, you're right. There's no clear idea of what it is he wants to do. He he, mm-hmm. he so he set them up to succeed theoretically, right? But then he took off, so he's not going to help them succeed. Right. It's it's sort of like an IQ test, and I get that. I mean, it's there's kind of a there's kind of a Prometheus thing here, right? The movie, not the you know ancient god from <laughs> mythology, where in right. the movie Prometheus. Okay, wait, I actually I got busted recently for ruining Dune for somebody. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, oh, this is absolutely no. true. Somebody who was actually reading, and it's a friend too. And I, I should have. <laughs> okay, so spoiler alert: I'm going to reveal stuff about a movie that came out a couple of years ago. Yeah. As we record this, and there's no telling how old this movie is by the time, but it's probably forgotten because seriously, it wasn't that great. Yeah, there you go. So in Prometheus, uh, the movie, you got three seconds. <laughs> okay, now it's your fault, okay? So in Prometheus, the movie, these uh, archaeologists or historians keep finding hints that there had been um, uh, starfarers who came to Earth. And we don't find out what they were doing here on Earth until well into the movie, but... We find out that they came to Earth, and, and ancient civilizations have left basically clues as to how to go out to the stars and find this ancient race, right? Mm-hmm. Right. It's a little bit of that here. Except, I mean, Kukulkan apparently told them exactly what to do. He, he gave them a model kit, right? Or he gave yeah, them, I guess, right, I guess right. he gave them the blueprints and said, okay, just do this, and, and when you're done, I'll be back to check your work. And, of course, you know, he would know that their work was done right because he wouldn't know how to get back otherwise. Why is it that like ten thousand years later he's like ah they they they're dumb I'm gonna go kill them now I mean because <laughs> right, right, right. he says he wants to help but he's coming back to destroy them because they didn't get it 
Or maybe he's yeah. going to destroy them once they didn't bother calling him, but they did bother trying to shoot him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he also doesn't get the whole self-defense thing because he did shoot them first. Right, right. Yeah, but who are you yeah. to shoot me? It's so weird. I'm yeah. here to help. I gave you everything. Now let's fight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Talk to me about your hate. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> he, he's There's something about him, though, that's very practical. Yeah. You know, I mean, he, he's the kind of God that's just willing to fight with people, just get down and dirty. Mm-hmm. And um, he even gets worked up when McCoy asks him where he got the power cat. He's like, uh, I, it was young, and so I got it. It wasn't that hard. Duh. Right. Like you. <laughs> Like yeah, you were right. when I first came. You were you were babies just like that power cat. Right. By the yeah. way, uh Capellan Power Cat's coming this Saturday mornings to uh NBC. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a boring show though. They just walk around and electrocute everybody. <laughs> right. Nobody <laughs> can touch them. Yeah. Not even like Thundercats. I mean, you know, Thundercats at least you had a shot, right? Right. Plus right. they talked. I mean, this thing's just gonna How is it that McCoy didn't think about his hypo though? Come on. What's McCoy always thinking about? Always. He is going to shoot somebody up if it kills him. There are two things that McCoy is thinking about. Maybe three. Uh, (laughs) The ladies. Yeah. Occasionally a good bourbon drink. Mm -hmm. And his hypo. I mean, he sleeps with his hypo under his pillow. We We know this. We don't actually know it, but come on. We suspect. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But but the idea that it was Kirk who said, hey, you know, don't you have, you know, something that you could use here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here you go. No. <laughs> Now's your chance. <laughs> right, right. We had a uh, we had a reference here to the ancient Mayan calendar. Ken, I don't know if you remember the heady days of December 2012 mm-hmm. when uh, there, the, the, the more credulous among us maybe believed that uh, there was going to be the Mayan apocalypse. Uh, that never happened, by the way. Spoiler alert. And um, well, but we not, have a reference. Not yet. <laughs> it was supposed to be. You don't know. Okay, yeah, well, yeah. Mistakes, hey, uh, mistakes can be made. I mean, witness what happened with Kukulkan and his people. I don't know if you've heard that story. <laughs> well, <clears throat> oddly enough. Um, yeah, we do have a reference to that. Uh, Walking Bear talks about that uh, that long-form, super-accurate calendar. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I mentioned it in the the summary that it felt like that we, we've been here, maybe, before. We, we have Who Mourns meets The Cage and a whole bunch of other Star Trek stuff kind of wrapped up. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I get it that this story is an homage. And it's actually a smart episode full of ideas. Um, I just kind of have to wonder if people were disappointed maybe when this first aired, if they were Star Trek fans who remembered those original stories. And they're like, oh, this again? Oh, the god who isn't a god? Yeah, we've we've talked about that before. Honestly, I mean, you you call out who mourns for, uh, but yeah. it's it, it, it was done even more recently than that. I mean, we talked oh, before yeah, yeah, about yeah. we talked before about. Uh, I'm willing to you know uh, say okay, well, yes, we're revisiting some themes from the original series, but you know, you, I mean, you are showing this now to six to ten year olds, right? I mean, you're showing mm-hmm. it to adults too, but there are going to be kids whose first exposure to Star Trek is Star Trek the Animated Series when this first right. airs, right? Right. And so it's okay to do a little bit of a callback or, or, or to hit some of the same themes again. And there, mm-hmm. and, and, and again, we've also talked about the fact that adults didn't have the kind of access to Star Trek that we have today. Any minute of any day, I can go to any number of outlets and watch right. any episode of Star Trek that I want, which is very different than, you know, be home by four o'clock in the afternoon if you want to watch Star Trek because it's mm-hmm. on in reruns, but, you know, um, we, but, but we had this, this. We had this. We had this with the magics of Magus, Magus Two. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. We we had the same yeah. idea there. Yeah. Now, granted, that was even separated by a season because, as you mentioned last time, season one ended in January. Season two didn't begin until September. Right. So you had a very long time in there between, unless mm-hmm. they were showing them in reruns. Plus, I mean, it was only a year ago. <laughs> it yeah, wasn't right. five years ago as as the end uh, the original series had been right right so i mean you're just you're 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 just hitting like the exact same nail repeatedly or beating right. beating a uh, a divine horse apparently uh, or a dead power cat yeah, um, too. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it, it is interesting i mean it, speaking of retreads and replay you know the writer uh russell bates says that he was inspired by chariots of the gods and i still do i i take exception 
with this on some level, mainly mm-hmm. because it's bad science. But also now we're back to this idea where the number of intelligent beings that visited primitive man, we were absolutely lousy with them throughout history now, according to Star Trek. I mean, no one should ever be surprised by this again. Mm-hmm. We should be constantly running into ancient gods. And um, <laughs> Kirk, Kirk should literally just record his speech into the communicator and hit play. Yeah. And just a, here. You know, here's an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. Maybe what screwed up Coco Khan's plan was uh, Apollo. Oh, there you go. <laughs> like, there you go. Meeting and saying, what is that, like a pyramid in the middle of that? No, no, no. What you want is columns. Here, let me show you. <laughs> right, Maybe do right. this. And, oh, you can make some columns. It's like a lady holding up the uh, holding up the <laughs> roof. That's kind of, that'd be kind of cool. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, all, all that said, I still appreciate the premise and the message of the episode, though. But I, it, to me, like that whole thing is is wearing a little bit thin. Hey, um. This this one line in the episode, just once, I wish he'd let us use the stairs. How about an award for the most McCoy-like line in all of TAS? That's not bad. That, that, I thought that was that great. Is, that is a pretty good one. Although it had only been like the second time, I think, that they got transported someplace. So it seemed like it came a little early. My favorite yeah, line, yeah. Uh, and this really may sum up uh, Kukulkan entirely, uh, uh, my dream is ending and all of you are to blame. Yes, it's like you know, yes. I'm hearing I'm hearing somebody's mother, somebody's grandmother. I don't know what, I don't know what I'm <laughs> right, hearing there right. exactly, but yep. yeah, he's got some. If you can find a couch big enough to support a giant winged snake, uh, he needs to spend <laughs> some time on it talking to somebody. He does. He does. Yeah, um, I, I do like how Spock kind of gets the last line about Vulcan being better than everybody else. Yeah, you know, the aliens visited us. Of course, everybody knows that, but uh, we we showed him a thing or two. Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, there's another line worth pointing out here. Um, when Kirk says intelligent life is too precious to be led around by the nose, th- this was a direct Gene Roddenberry line. He he had left uh, notes for the writers, and and he had I believe said that into an audio tape, and they just transcribed it and plugged it in there because they they liked the way that that sounded. It's interesting that these uh, these ancient alien slash gods, uh, you know, all they need is just some praise. Um, that, that's all they really are asking for. Uh, they just need to be worshipped. So apparently worship is in short supply in the galaxy. Um, and I have to wonder if we missed another opportunity here to explore another culture as equals. So it's kind of like Apollo. We leave in the same way. Hey, we've we've settled our differences. Kirk gave the Kirk speech. We're not your children to be led around. Goodbye. Yeah, because it seems like they're they're you know now if Kukulkan can accept that we are intelligent beings, <laughs> then maybe we could you know have a cup of tea. Yeah, or share libraries. Something. It, well, there is kind of a weird – I mean, Kirk does say in the end that, you know, uh, that the technology that Kukulkan had would have been wonderful to have, but that the, um, that the price would have just been too great. It is kind mm, of yeah, odd that once yeah. Kukulkan realizes that they're not, you know, the mindless idiots that he, in, you know, encountered however many thousands of years ago, that he's not like, oh, excellent. Oh, so you guys have this now. Great. Well, we can, you know, we can talk because you're right. right. Talking is not what he was looking for. He was looking to grow something fairly intelligent. Yeah, you see, his 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 motivations are just completely muddled in this episode. You're right. He's looking to grow something intelligent, but he only wants that intelligent thing to worship him. He's not he's, looking he's to grow the perfect up. ancient god. Yeah, yeah, it's very it's very bizarre. But then you're <laughs> yeah. right. So Kirk actually says to him, "We don't need you anymore." <laughs> right? Why didn't he say to him? But we could use one of those things over there. How much would that? <laughs> how much for just that part? Can I have that? Or you know, yeah. what if I say? You're very handsome. <laughs> then yeah, then yeah. can I have some of your amazing technology? And also, you smell great. Is that can I, will, will that get me one of those things over there too? And and it's a lovely feather boa that you're wearing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. So, um, what what did we learn from this episode? Um, how how well? I, I'm going to sound mean, so I don't know. We didn't learn as much as we learned from other episodes, honestly. I felt like of the three, you know, I was the guy who taught you episodes. I honestly feel like the magics of Magus 2 mm-hmm. might be my favorite of the three because it encourages you to look at things in a different way. 
Yeah. It encourages you to, you know, sort of uh, see something and, and not assume that it is what you might automatically assume that it is. Because, right. and who mourns for Adonai, Adonais, whichever. Yeah. In that episode, um, he is exactly what he seems to be. Uh, mm-hmm. He was, a, he was, a, he, whether he's a god or not, he sort of treats himself as a god. People had treated him as a god, and then he's bummed about not being a god anymore. Yeah. And so he's going to go away. Uh, in this episode, I mean, homage is one way to put it. Um, <laughs> in this episode, we get the same thing from Kukulkan, and we got something very different from Lucian, right? Yeah, yeah. Yet we'd been told that he was evil. We'd been told that he was evil this whole time, and then we come to find out, no, he's not, actually. He's just he's just a guy, right? Mm-hmm. He's just mm-hmm. a guy who scared people, and so in their fear, mm-hmm. they decided he was a terrible thing. I honestly felt like that was the one that was that was most insightful that was the one from which we learned the most of these three and i think you have to i honestly think you have to view them as a set because they're they're tackling well in, in the case of magics uh, some of the same ideas and in the case of who mourns uh, the exact same ideas yeah well that, that sums up what i was thinking perfectly i mean who, who mourns is uh, or I should say, the, uh, How Sharpen the Serpent's Tooth is a direct retread. It is a direct parallel to Who Mourns. Mm-hmm. Magics of Megas 2 is, is sort of the counterpart to uh, what we started with in Who Mourns. Mm-hmm. So I feel like those two episodes go together very nicely um, in kind of exploring this idea of how Star Trek deals with uh, the, the whole concept of God's religion and worship and uh, all these very big, important things. I, I think if we didn't use the word uh, subversive for Magics of Megas 2, I know that we've discussed other episodes as being subversive, but mm-hmm. it applies to that one as well. This one, I feel kind of continues a little bit in that vein of at least undermining the idea. And again, we're talking about a show presumably made for children, but also approachable and accepted by adults um, that allows you to allows you to at least a little bit give a different perspective to uh, the idea of religions and, and what do we need with, with gods. Um, so, it, but just as who mourns did and who mourns did better, uh, I think. So it, it's a valuable intellectual exercise to go through. Well, I mean, I, if I could, if I could interrupt you for one mm-hmm. second, the one yeah. thing that I would say this has over who mourns. Mm-hmm. So it's obvious that people tried to do what this, seeming deity wanted them to mm-hmm. and it wasn't good enough to try i mean mm-hmm. there, there's honestly there's a little bit I, I don't know if there's a little bit worse or maybe there's a tiny bit of a message in the fact because all all apollo wanted was worship that was it right, right and 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 people would have been able to worship kukukan no problem right mm-hmm. but then he gave him like a test as well and there there's evidence all over the world all over Earth, that 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 you know, people tried to pass his test, but they didn't pass his test, mm-hmm. and so that's not good enough. He's actually going to come back and destroy us now, yeah. because because yeah. we don't even remember his name. That's how that's how that's how kind of useless we are. So I mean, if you want to do, I don't know, a bit of harder analysis, I don't think it's I don't think it's intended to be a message, but it is sort of interesting that I mean, not only is you know, if this thing is a god. Uh, maybe we've grown past it, but then there's also the idea that you know there's there's no such thing as pleasing God anyway. Try as you might, you're mm-hmm. you, you're still what you are, and you're never right. going to be good enough in that's eyes. And that's right. sort of a scary, terrible, awful idea if you're a believer. Right, right. But I feel like that's kind of the interesting, uh, again, subversive part of yeah. Star Trek. And there's also kind of the the flip side of that, the positive message that we've seen in Star Trek over and over again, which is it, it kind of like we get to pat ourselves on the back a little bit and say – we are better. We we are more advanced. We're no longer primitive. We've outgrown these things that have held us back, that have made us live in fear, that have made us act out in inappropriate ways. And now flip that with Kirk saying, we're barbarians. <laughs> we can kill, but we won't kill today. You, you know, it, it, we get to say to ourselves, hey, even if, even if we have outgrown you, at least if we're not perfect, we're standing on our own. And we will continue to figure this out on our own. 
So um, maybe there's a, a bit of that pervasive Star Trek message in this as well. Don't move. Seriously, do not move. There's only one more cartoon left. We'll get to that right after this. Mego presents the Star Trek action figures featuring the crew of the Enterprise. Captain James T. Kirk, their fearless leader. Dr. Bones McCoy, caring for the health of the Enterprise crew. Scotty, the chief engineer, in charge of the transporter room. Mr. Spock, the Vulcan first officer. Lieutenant Yahura, the communications officer. And, new for 1976, the aliens, Klingon. Their evil threatens the universe. Gorn, half-human, half-beast. Chiron, is he good or evil? Neptunian, dangerous in space and in his own watery habitat. And the Keeper, his incredible intellect threatens the Enterprise. The Star Trek Aliens. One last time into the Inkwell. Cartoon number two is the last episode of the animated series, The Counterclock Incident. Act one. The Enterprise is on a journey to Babel. No, not that journey to Babel. This time they're taking with them Commodore Robert April, the first captain of the USS Enterprise. April is turning 75. Starfleet's mandatory retirement age, and they're on their way to his retirement party, along with his wife Sarah, the first medical officer of the USS Enterprise. Commodore April tells Kirk that he's never felt as at home anywhere as he has aboard this ship. Kirk gets that. While cruising through the ionosphere, you'll encounter some cosmic things, like the Beta Niobe supernova, and maybe one day a champagne supernova, but not today. The Beta Niobe supernova is dangerous, but Kirk and Spock say they're far enough away that it poses no threat to them. It does, however, pose a threat to that ship flying at warp 36 straight for it. The Enterprise tries to contact the runaway ship, but it does not respond. Unable to just let the ship destroy itself, they throw a tractor beam on it. That slows the alien vessel some, but also starts pulling the Enterprise into the Beta Niobe supernova. Now the alien vessel makes contact, or tries to but everything the ship's captain says sounds like gibberish. The Universal Translator tells them that the language is the same language they speak, it's just coming at them backwards. Played that way, the alien captain says her ship is on a mission of life and death and the Enterprise is slowing it down. She demands they release the tractor beam. Kirk tries to warn her of the ship's imminent destruction, but the aliens are again refusing contact. Scotty isn't, though. He calls to the bridge to say they cannot keep these speeds up or something. Now at warp 11, then 14, then 22. Kirk decides to release the tractor beam. He can't destroy the Enterprise and kill its 430 crew members to save one ship. But the Enterprise controls are not responding. They're still being pulled into the Beta Niobe supernova. Kirk has a new plan. When the alien ship enters the supernova, it'll be destroyed, and the tractor beam will be broken. The Enterprise will have half a minute to pull a hard turn and avoid destruction. It's a great plan. There's just one problem. Entering the supernova does not destroy the alien ship. It's still pulling the Enterprise, which won't be able to survive the Beta Niobe heat. Except, of course, it does. Act 2. Boy, do things look weird on the other side of the Beta Niobe supernova. Space is white. Stars are black. Not only that, but the Enterprise controls now work in reverse. Not only that, that, but the flower that April's wife Sarah had been holding... The one that was wilting away by the second is healthy again, as if it's growing younger. Not only that, 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 but Spock says the ship's chronometers are running backwards. Time in this universe is flowing backwards. The longer they stay here, the younger they'll all become. The good news is they can finally make contact with that alien ship. Its captain, Carla Five, explains what happened. She was exploring her side of the um, alternate universe thingy, when a dead star suddenly went supernova and came to life. Her ship was sucked into Kirk's crazy universe where everything ran 
Ford's, you know, what we would call normal. Her theory is that the two stars going supernova in the same space in their different universes opened a portal between the two universes or something. So then, all the Enterprise has to do is find a Nova and fly through it to get back to its own universe. Except in Carla 5 space, that would mean flying straight into the heart of an active burning star, which is suicide in any universe. Carla 5 says they should follow her to her planet. Maybe their scientists can figure something out. Down on the planet, Arat, the reverse nature of this side of things continues to show itself. Children are born fully developed, both mentally and physically. Like, fully developed. Like, Carla 5's son, Carl 4, stands about six feet tall and talks like a 70-something-year-old scientist. And the kid in the playpen? Yeah, that's her dad. Carl 4 has been working on getting the Enterprise back to its galaxy. Much as Spock surmised, they'll need a star going supernova in both universes. Since they don't know when a star will go supernova in either galaxy, they'll need to jumpstart one into life here, which will of course destroy a star in their universe. Also, they'll pull a time trap maneuver. The Enterprise would not be able to survive going through a supernova alone, but Carla 5 offers her ship to pull the Enterprise through. Act 3. They got a plan, and the means to carry out their plan. But this is an adventure show, so there is one more wrinkle in their time in this galaxy. Everyone is getting younger. At an alarming rate, for some reason. The problem, though, as they get younger, they lose their intelligence. They're turning into kids, unable to operate the ship's controls or even to know what to do. Even Spock will become too young. Luckily, they have a couple of highly skilled septuagenarians on board. Robert and Sarah April will ignite the Dead Star, guide the Enterprise back to its own universe, and save the day. It does, of course, work. But now, all of the Enterprise crew members are kids. No sweat. They'll just put them through the transporter. It'll use their mature patterns to turn them back into their adult selves. Sarah says they can stay young, too, but Robert says their lives have been good. He'd rather be his 75-year-old self than this much younger man. Old again, they do get one piece of good news. In view of Commodore April's recent heroic actions, Starfleet will review his mandatory retirement. Sarah muses over the fact that this trip to the alternate universe has given them all a second life. The end. Wow. Uh, hey, Ken, here's this beautiful, rare flower uh, that will die in hours. So uh, mm-hmm. why don't we pick it and put it on her blouse? Yeah, it's it's from a different planet, by the way. Yeah, and right. it's, not, it's, not a, it's not on her blouse she's holding it. I'm well, thinking, that's right, she is holding it. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever carried a flower. They tend to last a little bit longer on your lapel or on, you know, like as part of a corsage than they are mm-hmm. if you're just walking around holding it. I mean, it might be her that's killing it. <laughs> it's oh, a native no. of Capella 4, which I think may be somewhere near where the Capellan uh, electric cat comes from. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so it, it, right. it is a place mm-hmm. of, of both uh, strange and dangerous beauty. <laughs> and yeah, what she's doing with it there, I don't know. Is that like it's on the gift shop? Because that's, yeah, that's, that's a lousy souvenir. Yeah. Oh, no, this would be it, great. It'll last for like a minute. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like they should replicate that with something else. You know, yeah. It should not be this incredibly rare flower that uh, that dies as soon as you pick it. Or, yeah, yeah maybe a silk one. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> a lovely silk flower. Or a holographic one. I'm thinking there Ooh, are any number yeah, of yeah, ways yeah. that you could do this because, yeah, that's a lot of resources to expend on something that's seriously going to be dead by the time you get to your cabin. Yeah. yeah. Hey, uh, about that retirement um, – I wonder if 75 is just the cutoff for humans, because it seems like within Starfleet, if you've got people of all races from all planets who yeah. have all different lifespans, this could be very difficult to track. Yeah. How old was um, Sarek when we met him? Just old. Yeah. Really, really old. And he had not even started his career. I mean, and I don't know mm-hmm. if he ever actually will start a career in Starfleet or the Federation. <laughs> right. me. I'm guessing. I mean, he's got, you know. I think Starfleet likes the cut of his jib enough that they may one day give him a job. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. yeah. He better not tell them that he's like, you know, 79. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And then how about that? It's like, well, I'm not going to stay young, but now I have to go to work again. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go to work. I just don't want to do it in this, you know, this yeah. young man's body. Uh, it's a very, yeah. yeah, there's a lot. 
well, first, you've, you've probably got some trivia or stuff before we I do. Yet. I, I do. Yeah, okay. we'll, we'll get to that because yeah. I, I have strong feelings about that, and I'm sure that you do, too. Uh, this episode is written by Fred Bronson. We haven't met him up until now, but we will definitely hear his name again in Trek Yet to Come. So. Mm-hmm. Try to uh, try to remember that. And do you remember way back at the beginning when we were first started talking about the animated series? I mentioned that there is this idea floating around to recast the crew of the Enterprise with child versions of of all the characters. Well, this is the closest thing we got to that is sort of playing with this Benjamin Button esque story here. Yeah, um, it's not uh, Benjamin Button esque though because I, I haven't seen Benjamin Button. Okay. Oh really? But oh, doesn't oh, he doesn't he get more intelligent as he gets younger? Yeah, well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. There's I got to uh, Okay. I know. Yeah, that that's weird. Does Carla Five's side of reality clone their progeny? That's my question because she had an 80-year-old man. She did. She, she <laughs> If this is done the way it's normally done, right? Yeah. Then she gave birth to an 80-year-old guy. That just seems very Six feet tall, 100-some-odd pounds. Just, you know, and can you imagine the birth announcements and the footprint (laughs) and the whole thing? And does he he pop out like a scientist? I mean, is she getting to choose what he's going to be? Because she was an explorer, so it's obviously not just something that's built into – it's not encoded in their DNA, right? Right. Does he like wake up and instead of you know crying and being smacked on the behind, does he wake up and say, "Well, E obviously equals MC squared." Duh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Congratulations, yeah. ma'am. It's a scientist. It's a scientist right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although, if you if you want to smack me on the behind, I I wouldn't complain. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, because I mean, you're talking about he's going to come out with like everything that a person is, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it makes it makes um yeah. No, that that's very very weird. It's I, it's it's kind of weird. We do get to meet. Captain Robert April here. And, and it is worth pointing out that um, Robert April was in the original draft for Star Trek. You know, but we had Christopher Pike, obviously, as a name, and later Captain James Kirk as a name. And there was Captain Winter that was kicked around. But yeah, Robert April was kind of going back to the uh, the original documents about Star Trek that uh, Gene had drafted. And now we get to plug his name in. Did so I, I thought that was very cool. Did I not hear somewhere that that was actually a, a pen name for uh, for Gene Roddenberry at one point? Or, mm-hmm. or am I making that up? I, I think you're making things oh, up. Oh, awesome. Well, I, I forgot to do that earlier. So there cool, you go, yeah. kids. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought it was cool that uh, that we actually got to meet him. And, and just maybe, just maybe we will hear his name kind of kicked around in later Trek. Um, Ken, we, we have to talk about the transporter again, though. Yeah. The, you know, the, the magic transporter that solves the problem. And please, Captain April, stay out of the transporter. <laughs> Just stay out of the transporter, really, because you've been given this gift, and um, really, I feel like you did not spend enough time talking this over with your wife. There is, you know, I actually, I was doing a Robert J. Sawyer novel in my head, because there was something that happened, I, I cannot remember which one it was now, but there was a, he wrote a novel where you could get yourself replaced with a robot body. So, and mostly mm. what that was, it was like 90-year-old people, 100-year-old people, people who couldn't, you know, run around and do stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, would then uh, get themselves replaced with a robot body, and they and and they had the problem of you know they were still going to live someplace else and know that it wasn't them, but they were going to live in opulence and comfort, and in the meantime they could go ahead on Earth and you know keep doing what they're doing, right? Yeah, yeah. And th- there ends up being a problem in this particular novel where one of the guys stays old, and I think the woman that he's in love with, or vice versa, I can't remember. But there's an age discrepancy thing, and mm-hmm. also a robot versus human discrepancy thing. So there's a lot mm-hmm. going on in this book. I wondered about that, though. Like, what if Sarah had said, nuts to you, dude? Yeah, right. You know, I I don't want to be 78. You know, you're facing mandatory retirement. I've been retired for three years now. Or you're facing mandatory retirement. I'm going to have to retire in two years. Or, Mm -hmm. hey, look what I can do now. (laughs) Is there any number of reasons, you know, just for him to decide? It's a very sort of uh, Apostle Paul marriage that they have where she's like, hey, Mm -hmm. we can stay young. And he's like, no, no, honey, we can't. She's like, oh, you're right, honey, we can't. Really? <laughs> it might because warrant 45 can. seconds of discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. one of you can, you know. Right. Although, again, you actually have the problem. You've mentioned it before. Like, why don't they just – I mean, you're going through the transporter all the time. Why is anybody aging? Ever. 
Yeah. Right. It's like five right. years on an away mission is like a day. Once mm-hmm. you get back to Earth, you've got the five years of experience, but you're still just as good as when you left. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. it's totally brilliant. It Well, it would be, except that it's only – I mean, it's it sort of flirted with in the next generation, I, I, I hear – um, and, and we don't really talk about it. I think we talked about it one time in the original series, but yeah, it's like, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. like the cure all pill in the animated series. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. That, that's unfortunate. Um, but I, I particularly feel bad for Sarah because <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just seems very yeah. unfair. There's the man I fell in love with. Why doesn't he stay? Yeah, right, right. Except, I mean, the, the, that's the whole weirdness, though, right, of they all lose their intelligence as well. Yeah, right? well, I mean, here's the thing, though. So they're the only adults on board at this point, and, right. and kind of Spock as well. They've got a lot of time here where they've had to round up all the other crew members and get them in the transporter. <laughs> and well, What about those ensigns that are, like, 20 years old and now yeah. they're babies? Uh, that's just a whole Hopefully mess. they're still babies. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, it really, it, it was kind of bizarre. Although the the the, the little girl, Uhura, sitting there yeah. with Sarah was actually very cute. It was a cute yes. drawing. Yes, yes. Uh, cuter than the, um, huh? Uh, Kirk and the, nice. um, huh? Sulu. Yeah. <laughs> they were both. Yeah. And, that, and hitting that moment, I, I guess, and probably in the, uh, if they had been able to pull it off in the original series, which they would not have been able to do as smoothly, but you would assume that, like Sulu turned dumb instantly. Yeah, he's like, "What is this? What's all this stuff? I don't know." Whereas Uhura's right. like, eh, "Captain, I don't remember how to work all this anymore." I yeah. mean, she's she's hip to the fact that something has happened. Sulu just goes straight to like a like a pea-brained individual. Right. Well, and it's funny that all the voice acting uh, to play younger, you go higher pitched and faster and louder and louder. <laughs> Shatner went thing. louder with it. <laughs> What, what are you talking about, John? <laughs> right. Yeah. It was exactly like that. Well done. Um, I, I think that the thing about this episode is, is that to me, it kind of feels like the last gasp of 60s sci-fi. So it is not so much about the characters or the science. It really, really is just like this crazy premise. I feel like if Erwin Allen hadn't made Land of the Giants, he would have made Land of the Backwards People. And every week we have to figure out how to get away from the Land of the Backward People and not, not age in reverse. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So uh, that that to me is the weakness of this episode. It's all about the the crazy premise and uh and, and that's pretty much it. I, I would have liked to have spent more time with uh uh Robert April and more time with the conundrum of um him not discussing his decision with his wife quite enough. They well, discussed it a little but not enough. There are a couple of things here that I thought were really fascinating actually. Okay. Um, one is and and it's not really addressed. They're about to blow up a star. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're they're mm-hmm. they're igniting a star on this side of the galaxy, which is great because you can figure out exactly what's around it, and you know, and and okay, so how sure. far away do people need to be, and all that stuff. They are going to blow up a star on the other on, on in our universe. Yeah, let's, right. just, let's just sit with that yeah, for yeah. a minute. Yeah, right. <laughs> you right. would think you would think you might go. Well, is there any way we can maybe slow this getting younger process so that we can live out our lives here? Because who knows what we're going to cause or destroy in our universe mm-hmm. when we blow up a star to get back? Because very, yeah, I just yeah. want to go ahead and point it out one more time: they're going to blow up a star. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and and all that comes with that when you say I'm going to blow up a star. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. what I'm saying. And I, I don't feel like that was addressed um at all. Mm-hmm. Like Spock, you would think would be the kind of guy who would go, you know, if we do this here, I, and and don't misunderstand, I get why we're thinking about it, but <laughs> <laughs> he might be the one to go. Yeah, maybe we could figure out a way to reverse things our own way. I feel like there actually was kind of a lesson here. Hmm. About things not always being what they seem, down literally to, you know, white is black and black is white and young is mm-hmm. old and old is young and backwards is forwards and forwards is backwards. You know, mm-hmm. y- you get the idea. I mean, everything is not exactly what it seems, right? Sure. Um, oddly enough, though, in a show for kids, and, and certainly we get that message, too, with Robert April. He's 75, so it's time for him to go. It's time to put him out to pasture. He can't possibly have anything good to offer anymore. No, you know, not that's at all. That's it. Not we'll, at all. We'll give him a watch or whatever passes for a watch in the 23rd century, 
and uh, and send him on his way, right? <laughs> right. Um, except in a show for kids, and I know it's not a show for kids, but it's you know shown at that time, and it's mm-hmm. also for kids, if not entirely for kids. In a show for kids, kids are just dumb and useless. Yeah, and they just are. Yeah. There, yeah. there, there's value in being old. There's wisdom. There's intelligence, and you should you know respect the elders and maybe not put them on the ice flow the first time they fall and break their hip. Um, but from Carl Four, you know, to the guiding hands of Robert and Sarah April, you, you know, adults, yes, absolutely, and mm-hmm. and e- even the older, wizened adults. I mean, this guy who's like strapping and in his thirties is like, no, I'm going to be seventy five because that's just what I'm supposed to be, right? Kids though are just morons. Yeah, and that's that's really kind of weird. I get I I get the message of respecting elders. <laughs> but the fact that the kids didn't play any part in this at all, except for, you know, being idiots that had to be led around, yeah. um, was kind of a surprising message for uh, for Saturday morning. Well, I think that would actually be a really interesting conversation to have sometime, um, whether it's on a, a different show or an additional show. But um, what you're saying reminds me of uh, something that came up when I was working on DVD features for another cartoon series. And a friend of mine who was being interviewed for it was talking about the fact that there was a kid character mm-hmm. in that show. I, I'll just say the name of the show it was Mask. It was, uh, uh, you know, M.A.S. It was sort of a, you know, knockoff of like Transformers and stuff like that. G.I. Joe, definitely a G.I. Joe knockoff. Mm-hmm. And, um, but they had a character in it that was a kid. And the kid's kind of annoying. Mm-hmm. But I think the cartoon knew that and they sort of played him down where they could. And the guy that I was interviewing said, um, kids watching cartoons should watch adults being awesome. You know, that that was his impression of what he wanted to see and what he thinks the kids ought to see. It's like once you introduce the kid character, you have a lot of problems. You, you, you've got to – well, is this kid precocious? Is he smarter than the adults? Is he always having to get saved? You know, what do you actually do with that kid character? Who knows? Maybe we'll be able to grapple with that in a future version of Star Trek and see how that actually plays out. <laughs> but, um, um, but but I kind of agree. And, and I don't know where the dividing line is. But here again, I think Wait, we're seeing the, I'm the sorry. last. Mm-hmm. Forgive me. You agree yeah. with which that kids should watch adults or that kids were treated as idiots in this episode? Oh, all of the above. I, I agree that kids are treated kind of like idiots in this episode. And maybe that sort of we're getting toward the end of that period where cartoons for kids were primarily about adult characters doing adult things. Hmm. Superheroes are adult characters doing adult things. And I think it's later that you get cartoons for kids that are focused on kids. Well, it's but it's around this time that you start to introduce both, right? I mean, th- mm-hmm. there was the Super Friends with um and and it was always bad when it happened. Like Zan yeah, and Jana yeah. had Gleek or before that, uh there were I can't remember the name of the characters, but they were like the so there's Superman and there's Batman and there's Aquaman and then in the 70s version of the Super Friends there were also these two kids standing there with far out capes with like mm-hmm. high collars and bell bottoms and I think they mm-hmm. had a dog. I don't remember anything about them, but at that point you are sort you are sort of starting to bring in the idea that you know kids and adults can work together, or yeah. that you or that you know that you're not completely useless. Um, it does go a little far the other way when you get to Inspector Gadget, when you know Penny and her dog are actually are, are really the ones fighting Mad at that point. I think it was mm-hmm. Mad, wasn't it, or Doctor whatever Doctor Claw? I can't remember which one it is now, but. Um, I mean, I mean, you sort of you sort of take it a little too far when when it's only the kids that are smart and, mm-hmm, and the adults mm-hmm. are idiots. Um, although I can certainly understand why that would appeal to a child. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. It's not a great lesson, but I don't feel like a great lesson is, well, kids are stupid. And so you have to have adults around. You know, I mean, you do have to have adults around, but not your useless kids. Just listen to the grown up because <laughs> that can actually get you into a whole world of trouble. No, I, I, that is an extreme case of that. Yes, yeah, I agree with you there. Uh, that we, we don't want to say that they're outright dumb, but they, they need the help of the adults. They, they, they're in over their heads, so they need the help of the adults. But like I said, I think that would be an interesting thing to look at as, as to how that character dynamic changes. And, and I think it is here. It, it's starting to happen in the 70s like the characters that you mentioned that show up on the other superhero shows. And then it's very, very different 
when you get even later into the 80s and 90s. But um, that'll be our other podcast, Kid Characters in Cartoons. Um, which, remind me, we're doing after the Moonlighting podcast, which we're doing after whatever comes later in Star Trek? Yes, that is correct. Okay. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so um, to wrap these up, Ken, uh, how do we like these episodes? I Well, the first one um, that, you know, it's please, we're 20 minutes after talking about it. There's no way I can remember. How sharper <laughs> sure. than a serpent's tooth. Um, it's, I didn't like it only because it, like, it reminded me too much of Who Mourns for Ada. And, <laughs> right. and it just made me miss Lucian. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I, I love the fact that it was an homage. I, lo- I do love the fact, actually, that they did bring in the Native American character. Um, mm-hmm. And yes, way to, you know, way to not make him stereotypically Native American, but really mm-hmm. your only indication was, you know, that his name was Walking Bear. I mean, right. until he started talking about his society. So, I mean, that was kind of a fine line to uh, tread, but I, I think that that part of it was kind of neat. Yeah. Um, otherwise, though, I just really didn't like it, unless unless it really is a tip of the hat to the fact that, you know, all of this is just made up, that it's all the fevered dream of, you know, <laughs> of somebody down in, you know, down, down in the bottom of the Enterprise, in which case, kind of awesome. Um, I liked the idea of the counterclock incident, but it was just a little too, you know, on the head. I mean, mm-hmm. literally black is white and white is black. Literally forward is backward and backward is forward. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's, uh, I mean, maybe in a longer episode, they could have taken longer to figure that out. The fact that nobody understands that she's talking backwards. I know, right. You know, <laughs> although I did like the fact that they didn't say, oh, no, she's speaking English. It's just not the same. It's just we just can't understand it because it's backwards. They actually right. they made a point of not saying it's English, which is yeah. kind of an interesting, uh, very subtle indication that everything is not exactly what you think it is in the future, even because it's, we it's hear branching. English. Well, we don't know what, <laughs> what, what <laughs> thing. they didn't call it universal basic, which is what they always call it in role playing games. But I mean, you right. know, it, it's it's she's speaking the same. I can't remember what it was. Language, though. It was definitely not English that they were speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was really cool. It's interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. What about you? Um, Did you like them? Uh, kind of. Okay. Yeah, you know, not not really, but kind of. I I, I said what I felt about Counterclock, that it, it just feels like, you know, late 60s conceptual sci-fi. Now we're backwards. Now we're this. Now we're that. We have to get out of it. So it kind of lost its appeal for me. The things that I did like about it is that we got to meet Robert April mm-hmm. and um, add a little more history to the Enterprise and its crew. So that was cool. But um, yeah, it, that is a show that could have been done better and in a more interesting way um, if it wasn't just about, hey, we're aging backwards. Um, it's the deadly years in reverse. Mm-hmm. Um, How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth? Yeah, I, I wanted to love it. I wanted to absolutely love it because these are topics that are interesting to me. Um, but like you, I felt like they were handled better in Who Mourns and in The Magics of Vegas 2. And there are many other opportunities for Star Trek to talk about God and religion and belief and our relationship to that and our position in the universe and are we better or not than we were and all all these great ideas. If I give credit to this episode, I'll give it because at least it introduces that again to potentially younger audience. And when when you show a younger audience how to change perspective just enough to look at a set of beliefs or or um, a set of authority, well, then that's not such a bad thing to do. So I like the idea, just really not the execution. All right. And of course, we already told people, you know, if they want to get in touch with us, how to get in touch with us about it. So, uh, mm-hmm. so wow, cartoons are over. Oh, man, I'm, I'm very sad about that. Well, now. it's kind of weird, right? Yeah, I had a great time watching these because it felt like new Star Trek. Yeah, you know? yeah. Which I think we might in a in an upcoming episode we might sort of revisit the uh, shortly. Yeah, revisit the animated to, series overall. Yeah, I would love to because I feel like the conversation about the animated isn't done yet, and uh, I imagine that people will contact us about that, and we will be able to include a bit of that in an upcoming episode. Speaking of upcoming. Would you like for me to uh, clue people in on what is coming up for Mission Log? Well, and what is coming up in the next few weeks, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, so we have uh, some supplementals 
coming up, uh, a few little uh, bonus episodes that uh, will whet your appetite. Um, so the very next episode after this one will actually not be a regular mission log. It'll be a supplemental. But then soon after that, um, I imagine most of our audience knows, but maybe a lot of them don't know all the details. So before we get into Star Trek The Motion Picture and the first six uh, Star Trek movies, we're going to take a detour and we're going to talk about Star Trek Phase 2 with some very special guests. We'll get the lowdown on all of that sort of uh, limbo between the end of the animated series and then what became Star Trek The Motion Picture. I cannot wait to have that talk and to share it with all of you. And then coming up after that, it's uh, The Balcony is Closed, Save Me the Aisle Seat, We'll See You at the Movies. <laughs> that is correct. Very exciting. Music formation log provided by Big Organ Trio. Find their self-titled album on iTunes. Additional music provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. And from the album Messages by Key Theory. Free to download at kitheory.com. I'll miss Erickson Mares. They should have gotten their own cartoon. Somebody write out and get back to me. And transmission.